Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I do appreciate, more than I can say, the, the opportunity to be with you as you begin the winter semester. I'm grateful that all members of my family can be here tonight, but particularly that my wife and my daughters are here, and that creates a moment when, before proceeding to my text, I would like to observe that the role of women in the Church has never been more important than it is now, because never has the Church been so directly important and so influential to so many members of the human race as it is now. And while the Church will always be priesthood-led and priesthood-centered, we must not make the mistakes, brothers and sisters, of assuming and drawing wrong conclusions from that reality. I hope the young women of the Church will do all they can to develop their God-given talents and to stretch themselves intellectually and spiritually during their youth and young adult years, for the learning process is scaffolding for the soul. We desire our women to be unarguably superb individuals, wives and mothers, and they can contribute so much to this outcome by making the most of their educational opportunities both now and by having a posture of lifetime learning. A short time ago, during one of the few times at my own Lord's Sacrament meeting, our bishop called attention to a brochure describing a local Church educational program which he placed at the side of the pulpit. Significantly, after the benediction, the first person to come up and get a brochure was Sister Camilla Kimball, the wife of the Prophet, who has rightly been called a Lady of Constant Learning. She continues to be involved spiritually. She's been a Relief Society spiritual living teacher for more than 20 years until recently. She continues to be involved educationally. She has taken classes of one kind or another every year since she's been married, except for the last two years when traveling has precluded this kind of participation. She, not a man, was the first pace-setting child of that family of 18 to leave and set the pace educationally, and it's a high-achieving family. I remember a BYU movie a few years ago in which there was a line that went something like this, Some men never recover from the ignorance of their mothers. Conversely, one cannot fully appreciate the Prophet Joseph Smith without noting the remarkable qualities of his outstanding mother, Lucy Mack Smith. We give to our children what we are, and the more a mother brings to the nest, the more nutritive the nest. It is very important, therefore, that we genuinely encourage the full development of women in the Church so that they can carry out their unique roles effectively and articulately in the nursery, in the neighborhood, in the classroom, as well as in cookery. Brethren, marry a woman who is your better in some respects, and sisters do likewise, so that your eternal partnership is one of compensating competencies. This is certainly the case in my own marriage. So far as certain attributes or skills are concerned, I am the Avis in our eternal partnership. You may think that hurts, but I am glad, not threatened by my wife's qualities. I am grateful for her traits and qualities that excel my own in some critical dimensions of our lives. 
I hope that our young sisters will not only acquire the vital skills of homemaking, therefore, but that they will not neglect their natural talents in literature or language and in science, just as I hope our men study the facts of fatherhood as well as physics or fine arts, and that each will put their hands to the plow without looking back. Education involves the preparing of the person, and that is what matters, more than the particular calisthenics that are used. Remember, brothers and sisters, we take our knowledge, skills, and attributes with us, not only into marriage, but also into eternity. Knowledge rises with us in the resurrection, and the limitations on our luggage then will not be limitations of volume, but of kind. Finally, I have never sung Eliza R. Snow's lyrics of 1845 in the anthem of appreciation, O my Father, without being touched by its reverence for womanhood, which is light years ahead of some current attempts to dignify womanhood. The inspired truths for those lyrics came through the Prophet Joseph Smith, but the inspired poetry was Eliza's, as President Joseph F. Smith once observed. Sisters, if there are some prophetic sayings which you don't fully understand, do what a magnificent Mary did. Keep those sayings in your heart and ponder them. Meanwhile, push out your borders, just as the borders of the kingdom are being pushed out. Let LDS women show the real way to womanhood, preening not for the praise of the world or for passing political preeminence. Male or female, we must not feel, fail to see such simple truths as these because we are forever looking beyond the mark. The bulk of what I wish to say tonight focuses on our need, <clears throat> individually and collectively, to summon all our skills and strengths in order to be able to lift and then to carry the challenging cross that each of us has been called to shoulder. The specific strategic statements of divine intent about mortality are rare and profound. We know, for instance, that the work of God is to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. We also know that God places a premium upon our having righteous experience, for all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. These are most fundamental precepts and perceptions about life. Without a correct understanding of these realities by great men and great women, there could not have been the faith, the trust, nor the courage that was needed at Gethsemane and Golgotha, or there could not have been a battered but prevailing Job, or a willing prophet Joseph Smith who went back to Carthage like a lamb. Correct conduct under stress is more likely when one has correct expectations about life. To err by being naive about what to expect from life concerning its purposes and the ways in which it will stretch our souls is to err everlastingly. Life is neither a narrow pleasure palace through whose portals we pass briefly, laughingly, and heedlessly before extinction comes, nor is life a cruel predicament in an immense and sad wasteland. Life, as the gospel tells us, is the challenging, middle, but briefest estate of the three estates in man's carefully constructed continuum of experience. One day we will understand fully how complete our commitment was in the first estate in accepting the very conditions of challenge in our second estate 
about which you and I sometimes complain in this school of stress. One day, our personal pre-mortal promises will be laid clearly before us. And when we are finally judged in terms of our performance in this second estate, we will see that God indeed is perfect in His justice and perfect in His mercy. We will also see that when we fail here, it will not be because we were truly tempted above that which we were able to bear. There was always an escape hatch if we had looked for it. We will also see then that our lives have been fully and fairly measured. In retrospect, we will even see that our most trying years here in mortality will often have been our best years, producing large tree rings on the soul, Gethsemanes of growth. Mortality is amply moistened by much opportunity if the roots of our resolve can but take it in. Just as no two snowflakes are precisely alike in design, so the configuration of life's challenges differs also. Some of our experiences are not fully shareable with others. Thus, others, try as they may, cannot fully appreciate them. They must trust us and our generalizations and our testimonies concerning these experiences. A few of our experiences should not even be shared with others. But it is useful to ponder the past examples of those who have been our partners on the pathway of life. In the midst of some of these individualized challenges, we may cry out on our small scale, just as the Savior did on the cross or as the prophet did in Liberty Jail. Being in agony, we will pray more earnestly. For cries of agony are not the same as cries of despair. Our individual experiences may not always be unique, therefore, but they are always authentic. God will even take into account our perceptions of as well as our responses to our trials. For those of us who do not, for instance, find claustrophobia a challenge, it is most difficult for us to measure the terror that comes to those for whom it is such a challenge. Thus, a friend may seem to struggle unnecessarily long before finally prevailing with regard to a particular principle of the gospel. But for that individual, the struggle was real enough. We need particularly to understand with kindness those about us who are asked to go out and do battle again on a familiar field, on the very battleground where they may have already suffered defeat several times. Others of our most difficult victories will occur on new terrain, like Joseph in Egypt, when we do not have the equivalent of a home court advantage. We must remember, therefore, that just as the Lord reminded the Prophet Joseph Smith that he had not yet suffered as Job, even so, only the Lord can compare crosses. It is not wise for us to compare crosses. Now, as I review some case studies, I hope you, I may leave it safely to you to make your own relevant application in your own life, if there be such, from the case studies to which I now turn. To begin with, there is always more drama about us than we can drink in. Mortal minds cannot measure the immortal moments we are about to consider. For instance, 
in terms of learning impact, there is simply no comparison between what you and I thought of when we last heard a rooster crow and what Peter thought of on that occasion when he heard the soul-piercing cry, and especially for the third time of a rooster crowing. That sound sent a shudder of sorrow and guilt through Peter. It was a godly sorrow, the kind that causes a cleansing and sends us inward to scrub the soul. You and I have heard roosters crow many times in our lives, but for him that moment was special. We will each greet each other, those we see at least tomorrow, but our sleep has often been different, even though we say the same good morning. Uriah apparently slept very well, for instance, when as the loyal lieutenant of King David, he slept with the servants on the floor at King David's door. Uriah was loyal to both his men, as he described them, in the open fields. He was loyal to his king. He was loyal to his wife, Bathsheba. By contrast, one cannot help but wonder how well the conspiring and adulterous David slept that same night. The later lamentations of David indicate many sleepless nights followed his sending of the uncompromised Uriah to his death in the forefront of the hottest battle where the valiant men were. Uriah fell, to be sure, but David plummeted from the privileged place prepared for him in the next world. Thus, there are certain mortal moments and minutes that seem to matter, certain hinge points in the history of each human. Some seconds in our lives are so decisive because they shrink our soul while other seconds are spent in a way that stretch our soul. Contemplate, for instance, the tale of two kings. There was a brief moment when King Agrippa was genuinely stirred by Paul's preachment before him. Paul discerningly knew that Agrippa knew, and Paul even asked Agrippa the ultimate question, Believest thou? But Agrippa would not own up to his intimations, to his spiritual stirrings, probably because he computed the cost were he to do so, and thus he smoothly said that he almost believed. In my opinion, however, Agrippa's comment was no flippant feedback. He had received the witness of a special witness, and some part of that man knew that what he had been told was true. By contrast, consider another king, King Lamoni's father. He heard Aaron's preachment and owned up to as much truth as he then understood. He was willing to acknowledge the spiritual stirrings within him. Trustingly, he said in reply to the interrogatory, Believest thou that there is a God with these words, and if now thou sayest there is a God, behold, I will believe. What great words from a great moment. Time in such settings is measured not by clock seconds, but by soul seconds. 
and those individuals about us who are free enough to acknowledge the first feelings of faith are true to themselves and thus are those whom the truth can make free. Contemplate two walks up and down the slopes of two adjacent mountains, Mount Moriah and the Mount of Olives. Up one mountain came Judas with a great multitude to kiss and to betray the Master. One wonders what the walk down the mountain that night was like for Judas. And which was the more searing, his lips on Jesus' face or Jesus' words to him, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Few scenes of pathos rank with that of an awakening and guilty Judas trying desperately to give back the thirty pieces of silver and then seeing how those who had used him fiendishly were totally devoid of any mercy or empathy for the predicament of Judas. Judas's soul slide was not a sudden thing, but his subsequent suicide ranks as perhaps the most self-contemptuous suicide in the history of mankind. By contrast, early one morning, centuries before, an obedient Abraham walked up and then down nearby Mount Moriah with his son Isaac. The scriptures say they went, both of them, together. Abraham had been told, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. We do not know what, if any, father and son conversation occurred on the way up Mount Moriah. But ponder, if you will, what could have been, and probably was, a most marvelous moment when the father and son walked down that mountain. Significantly, Abraham did not see the substitute ram on Mount Moriah until after the moment that mattered when he obediently stretched forth his hands and took the knife. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, therefore, the cross must be taken up decisively. There is no time for an agonizing appraisal. Turn, if you will, to the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three valiant men did not know beforehand if God would spare them from the fiery furnace. They simply said the following, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Note the words, but if not. These are words of unconditional commitment. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we must take the heat, even when we are not certain that the thermostat of trial will soon be turned down. We must decide before anything else is really decided. When we have that kind of courage, neither will we walk alone in our own fiery furnaces. For as is recorded in Daniel, there was a fourth form in that fiery furnace 
with this valiant threesome. And the scriptures say that that form was like the Son of God. Peter gave us wise counsel when he said to the disciple, which each of us aspires to be, the following words, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing had happened to you? It ought to be, brothers and sisters, part of the expectation of discipleship that we will walk at times in our equivalent of the fiery furnace. When we carry the cross, we must expect to share in some measure the sufferings of Christ. But He will be near us, even in the furnace with us. Sometimes the learning process is prolonged. It was only to use Enoch's felicitous phrase in the process of time that the reconciliation of Esau and Jacob occurred. How one warms to the later meeting of these two matured men and their immense caravans in the desert, years after the time when the struggle over status occurred and when Esau hated Jacob. How magnanimous are the later words then of a secure Esau in declining Jacob's proffered gift. The scriptures say, after Jacob had made his offering, and Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. Much time also ensued between the walk of Joseph's brothers back from the pit into which they had thrown Joseph, and another walk they had years later when they walked back from Egypt to Canaan with much-needed corn, when all the brothers who had treated him so terribly were saved by a generous Joseph. If we wonder today why, when individuals and groups become unprotesting participants, when groups are veering towards evil, that no one speaks up, and if we wonder why, when people speak up, it is much like what Reuben said on the occasion I have just discussed, in which he filed a kind of weak dissent, which simply made it possible for him later on to say, I told you we shouldn't have done that thing. If we wonder why those things happen, it is because individuals, Joseph's brothers, failed him. It is always the same, brothers and sisters. Our failures are individual. You and I, therefore, have an obligation to grasp those opportunities for truth-saying and for restraining evil. If we do not, we will tumble, as Joseph's brothers did collectively. Weak individuals make great dominoes. Perhaps a young Joseph, of whom his brothers could not even speak peaceably, might have actually given them some small cause for jealousy. We do not know. But a matured and magnanimous and highly spiritual Joseph modestly did not even reveal to his poverty-stricken brothers his own identity. The tree rings on Joseph's soul must have been large indeed, including the year when he was in the pit and then when he was sold into a strange culture in the beginning of a great adventure. Joseph was victorious on the road 
without the home court advantage, and his victory is the even more impressive, therefore. Sometimes men react not only when the scenery is the same, but the substance involved is the same, but the outcome is different. The same basic substance, for instance, chemically two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, left a non-listening pilot's hands very dirty. When he washed them, he thought of the affair concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He would not listen to feedback. But notice how water was used by Naaman, the Syrian military commander, who was willing to listen to feedback and from less statusful servants, and as a result was willing to be baptized or washed, as it were, in the Jordan River and was healed of his leprosy. Thus, brothers and sisters, the scenery, the sounds, the substance are often similar, but the consequences, the outcomes, are immensely different, depending on how you and I use these mortal micro-moments. It was George MacDonald who said, The moment which coincides with the work to be done is the moment to be minded. The next moment is nowhere till God has made it. There are some decisions, for instance, that we must make when we have a reasonable understanding of the consequences that will flow from such decisions. Jesus knew, for instance, Joseph Smith knew, about their impending martyrdom. There are other times when we are swept along by events and we must simply trust the Lord. Paul, for instance, may not have known that his judicial appeal to Caesar would finally take him to Rome and to precious points in between. But the Lord wanted Paul to go to Rome, and Paul was swept along on events of divine design and making. There are other times when we can see the consequences of our decisions, but we deliberately try to repress them because we do not want to face them. David's relationship with Bathsheba could have both started and stopped with his view from the terrace, but it did not, for David not only saw, but sent for Bathsheba. What, then, are some of the skills and strengths other than those now noted, which enable us to lift and to then carry the cross? First, we must realize that the weight of the cross is great enough without our carrying burdens that we could jettison through the process of repentance. Paul gave us wise counsel in this regard when he said, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. It is so much more difficult for us to carry the cross when our back is already bent with the burdens of bad behavior. Second, the cross is something we cannot shoulder and then stand still with. Of the Savior we read the following, And he bearing his cross went forth. The cross is easier to carry if we keep moving. Action and service happily require enough of our attention that the sag of self-pity can be avoided. Third, we must realize finally that we can only contemplate 
the cross just so long. Rhetoric will not raise it. It must soon either be taken up or turned away from. Fourth, no natural resource is more precious and to be used more wisely than time. These mortal moments matter more than we know. There are no idle hours. There are only idle people. In true righteousness, there is, of course, serenity and repose. But there is also an array of realizations and reminders that the sacred present is packed with possibilities which are slipping by us and which are going away from us. I have chosen to speak on this because of my immense, deep, and high regard for your generation of youth and young adults in the Church. Because I think more than you know, and no doubt more than the rest of us know, you have been fashioned for a time in which the Church will be asked to do things we have never done before or never done so well. The time you have to prepare yourself for what will come to you is shortening with each passing second and moment. I, for one, have such great confidence in you collectively that I find no difficulty at all in believing the utterances of the prophets in this dispensation who have told us from the beginning of the dispensation that some of the most choice and special spirits of our Father in Heaven will have been reserved to the very last days. If one therefore takes that kind of pride in you and has that kind of perspective about you, perhaps he can be pardoned for speaking to you as I have about the challenge of lifting and carrying the cross. Each of us comes to know our cross quite well. We know its configurations. We know its weight. We feel its weight. It would be so much easier for us to carry it if we could develop the faith which would permit us to cast our care upon our Father in Heaven because He cares for us, as Peter reminds us. It would be so much easier to carry if we could do what Paul says, rid ourselves of the weights that we need not carry. We may think these are a part of carrying the cross when in fact they are a function of our own stupidity or our own sin. And as Paul said, these are things we can rid ourselves of so that we may take up the cross and move swiftly on to our journey. At the risk of some repetition, therefore, as I close, I should like to suggest to you three different ways some here have had to listen to me cite before of trying to give you some feeling for your place in the scheme of things, some sensing of your place in this portion of this dispensation. Each of the examples I use comes out of an entirely different setting, but I share them with you because I think each contains an important reality about what lies ahead of you and, in fact, is now upon you as a generation. The first comes out of U.S. Marine history. On one of those rare occasions when the U.S. Marines had been driven back and were surrounded, the general commanding that particular unit 
instead of sending off a despairing and discouraging communique to the Commandant of the Corps, sent this interesting message. At last we have the enemy just where we want him. We are surrounded and we can fire in every direction. <laughs> and I say to you, at last, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the world just where we want it. We can serve in every direction, not alone these young men and women who are in the language training mission, but each of us. There is more to be done than we have time to do it in. There will be more stress laid upon you in some ways than you have time to get ready for. But for us to rejoice that though we may seem to be encircled, to know that in fact we are not. And for my second analogous insertion at this point, I turn to the prophet Elisha and that episode in Second Kings. What a young man, I expect about the age of the young men here tonight and the young women, awoke one morning and saw that Israel was surrounded by a hostile force, that the mountain was compassed about with horses and chariots. And in his honest anxiety, went to the prophet and said, Master, how shall we do? And Elisha, the matured spiritual leader, said, hoping to comfort the young man, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. But somehow it was not enough. And the prophet so sensed. And the scripture records that he prayed for the young man and asked that the Lord open his eyes that he too may see. And the prayer was granted. And the scriptures and words approximately like this record, And the eyes of the young man were opened. And he looked round about. And behold, the mountain was filled with horses and chariots of fire. We, too, must have our eyes opened, must have that perspective which permits us to see that, in fact, so far as the kingdom of God is concerned, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. For there will be times when it will not be clear to us when the mountain is compassed about that there are the equivalent of horses and chariots of fire, but it will be so. And our task is to so have our eyes open. And third and last, from Shakespeare's Henry V, again risking repetition for some here, those marvelous lines when a small force of Englishmen faced the battle of St. Crispin's Day on the morrow and apparently bedraggled and concerned they were anxious, and their leader tried to give them a sense of their place in history by using these words, which I share with you. He said to them, He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named, and gentlemen in England still abed will count themselves a curse they were not here, while Zeni speaks who fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. If we come safe home spiritually, you in particular, as a generation of young adults, can stand a tiptoe when this part of this dispensation is named, and others will be envious of the special privileges and opportunities that were yours. Now those, for me, are my feeble attempt to place you in the perspective of history. I have spoken frankly to you about the need for us to have realistic expectations 
about the purposes of life so that when stress comes, we will not be taken by surprise or by deepening despondency. I witness to you that this is the work of our Father in heaven. There is none other. There are many marvelous men and women around this globe who are kept from the truth only because they know not where to find it. But nowhere is there a force of human beings so organized, so authorized, so trained to do what you've been trained to do. And therefore, much, much of the weight of glory rests upon you prospectively. And therefore, as your friend, as one who has high hopes for what you are clearly capacitated to do, I leave those hopes with you as one who sees you collectively measuring up to those great mortal moments, some of which I have attempted to lay before you tonight. May God bless you to that end. We are prophet-led, and the tempo of that prophet, if we needed any other indication, is so urgent, so selfless, that it must be crystal clear to each of us that the majestic momentum of the Church in our time will thrust you to your places on the stage even before you feel ready. God grant, however, that you may be ready and that all of us may be ready is my prayer, which I leave in the name of him whose church this is, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.